Well, uh, God has really blessed me the last three days getting to know Steve and Mary Linetti a little bit face-to-face. And I just wanted to take a few minutes to introduce him. Stephen and Mary, um, God called them both at a young age, around 19, and um, they answered his call and went worked for New Tribes Missions for about 20 years, uh, mo- almost all the, after training um, 17 years in Indonesia and 15 or so with a completely unreached uh, people group called the Taliabo people on a remote island east of Indonesia. We do have, I do have a, a DVD of, that explains their ministry. If anyone hasn't had the opportunity to see it, you can reach out to me. But then Steve now also is the director and founder of LifeGate Worldwide, which is a ministry that is based on evangelizing and church planting using um, pastors that are from the countries that they live in, not North American missionaries going in to a country, but using raising up local pastors from in its various places, Russia, Germany, and uh, the Philippines and other places. So currently he also he runs that ministry and he's also God called the Linettis to plant a church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they're having their 10th anniversary this year, and he's the lead pastor there, Beacon of Hope Church. So I'm really pleased to welcome Stephen and look forward to hearing what you have for us. Might be the best sermon we ever heard because he has a doctorate in, in preaching from the Bible. You had to slide that in there. I'm going to turn myself on here. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Yeah, I can hear myself now. Well, good. You can turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, I just have to say, I'm going to just kind of put this out of the way, okay? I have to say that... um, I'm a churchman. I love church. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and by God's grace, when I was 19 years old, he, he plucked me out uh, from the way that I was running and saved me. And uh, shortly thereafter, I found myself in a Bible school and heard for the first time about the book of Acts and the church as it developed from the day of Pentecost on. And I was amazed, and I was enthralled, and I made a study of the church. And I have been a church planter, and am a church planter, and now want to support church planters every place that I can. So this morning, I just want to be able to bring to you from 1 Thessalonians, which I believe pictures uh, almost an ideal church, uh, the church at Thessalonica, And I'd like to bring to you a little picture, a little snapshot of gospel impact. What the gospel actually does to a people. When the gospel is preached and there's true repentance and regeneration, what actually takes place. Now, I could use the Taliabo because that happened in the Taliabo and you can see it on the DVD if you get the DVD from Sid. But I'd rather be from the the Word of God. It's much more sound than just a personal experience. So, Paul's ultimate reason 
if we consider his ultimate reason behind his thanksgiving that he gave for this church, it was his unshakable knowledge that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. And in order for you to catch that, I want to read just the first few uh, verses in this book. If you are there, we'll begin in verse 1 of Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to you always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Here it is. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, I want you to consider that. He says, we know that God chose you. How? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we contemplate these words from the Apostle Paul in recounting uh, his experience with the church at Thessalonica, we pray, God, that it would burn in our hearts as we see the impact that the gospel has upon people when it is received, truly received, through repentance and full confidence. Lord, we would pray that we would be encouraged this morning through this message. We pray that you would take this word and bring it to our hearts and lift our souls up, Lord. And we thank you for that in advance. For we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, as we consider these words, he had unshakable knowledge of the Thessalonians as having been chosen by God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that he knew their election by God due to the evidence that he saw, both subjectively and objectively. The subjective evidence was shown to be the very working of God in the lives of the apostle and Silas as they delivered the gospel. Remember, he said, we didn't deliver just the word to you. We delivered it in power. And so that was the subjective element. Paul states very clearly in verse 5 that the message they brought to the Thessalonians was more than mere words. The gospel message that they preached to the Thessalonians was accompanied by power, the Spirit of God, and full conviction. There's no doubt in the mind of Paul, none whatsoever, that among the Thessalonians, they had borne fruit. And he was aware 
that he was preaching with the incredible power of the gospel unto salvation just through the experience of preaching it. This was Paul's subjective reason behind the, the knowledge of the election of God. Uh, this tribal group that we worked with over in Indonesia, when we preached the gospel to them, uh, we knew that God was speaking through us to those people. And now, after many years, we preached the gospel to them in July of 1987. And now, after many years, looking back at what they have done, it was for real. It was for sure. And so I can relate to the Apostle Paul a little bit in just looking at what he did on the island of Taliabo. On the objective side, Paul recounted to the Thessalonians their outward observable responses to the gospel message. He declared in verses 6 and 7 some encouraging observations about the Thessalonians and how they received the truth that he and Silas had brought to them. Their response can be summed up by saying that they became something that they had not been prior to the hearing of and receiving of the gospel. They became new people. Now, when I was 19, running a thousand miles in the opposite direction, and God reached down and saved me, I became a new person. I no longer ran in that direction. And it was all by God's grace shed abroad on me. And that is what happens to people that truly repent, that hear the gospel, truly repent. They are born again. They, are, they become regenerate. And it's observable in the life. More on that later. Now, first in their innermost being, they became imitators. You see that um, in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, Paul said. That literally means they became mimes. The word, the Greek word is where we get our English word mimes from. They imitated the disciples. They, they welcomed the gospel as a long-awaited guest is welcomed warmly into a home. They received the gospel in that way. They embraced the good news and they made it comfortable in their lives by deliberate and appropriate reception. They took it to themselves as their own. Secondly, that reception took place simultaneously with the great suffering that accompanied their turning to Christ. Now it's very important that you understand this. This went together here. They, they became mimes, the same response that we saw evidenced by Paul and Silas. And that's why he said, you became mimes. Paul and Silas had come from Philippi, and they were in prison in Philippi, and they sang out songs of rejoicing in prison. And here, these dear people receive the gospel, and they're suffering persecution and they're rejoicing in the Lord and spreading the word everywhere. Their experience of affliction with joy was an anomaly to the non-Christians all around them. It was completely baffling. One referred to it as the perennial Christian paradox. I know that when I first became a believer, I ran with a whole crowd of people. Those people did not understand what had happened to me. I continued to try to hang out with them. They didn't want to hang out with me anymore. They said, Lynette, you're not any fun anymore. <laughs> they separated from me. 
I wanted to still, they were my friends. I, I still didn't have any Christian friends at that time. But see, this is the work. This is the, the amazing work of the gospel in a life. It, it was amazing to me. I didn't even know what he was doing with me. The Thessalonians not only became minds in their reception of the gospel message, but they also became examples. That This word example uh, is taken from, from, uh, from the, the mark that's left by a stamp. Okay, God had stamped their lives, and so they became examples. And they, they became something that they had not been prior to the hearing and receiving of the truth of the gospel. They became examples. Paul saw these evidences of faith exhibited through the Thessalonians' lives as they lived out their newfound faith. And this is what was behind his thanksgiving and his shocking statement of verse 4. Knowing, I am certain, his choice of you. But Paul didn't stop with those two outward evidences that he observed in Thessalonians. He went on to disclose a third reason behind his thanksgiving, the incredible report that he heard of them by others. Others were telling the testimony of the Thessalonians to Paul. The Thessalonians were not only a model church, as I mentioned, but by virtue of their being a chosen church, they were also an active church. The gospel that they embraced brought activity. This fact is well attested in the last three verses of chapter 1. By two very distinct occurrences in the lives of the Thessalonians, their proclamation of the Word of God and their dramatic conversion. And we're going to take a look at that right now. The proclamation. Look at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Now that's something coming from the Apostle Paul. He said, we don't have to talk about the gospel anymore in those areas because it sounded forth from you. An amazing testimony. It was the word of the Lord that was proclaimed. It was not their personal testimonies or fantastic conversion stories, but the word of the Lord. It was not self-centered. It wasn't even man-centered, heralding the benefits of the gospel and all the good things that they enjoyed now as believers. It was the Godward message they delivered as messengers, and that was their testimony. But the content of what sounded forth was the literal word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The phrase of the Lord is important. It forever closes the idea that the message delivered is to be a message about the Lord. We get it backwards sometimes. We talk all about Him and we're not giving the word of the Lord. We need to give the word of the Lord. Therein is the power. Not things about Him. That's important, I suppose. But there's no power in that. It is literally from the Lord. That's where the authority lies for the messenger. And therein is the messenger relieved of any need to alter the message or make any apology for the message. Thus saith the word of God. Every, I just did it before I got up. Every time before I get up and speak, I say, oh God, please keep my own little anecdotes to a, a, just a small portion here 
because there's nothing there. Let me break your word open. Let me exposit your word. Let me open it up and explain it so the people listening can hear your word and understand your word. A lot of us are fearful of sharing the gospel. Many people face incredible fear when they consider sharing the gospel with someone else. And this can often be traced to the root cause that they really have not grasped the fact that sharing the gospel is not about them. It's not about you. (laughs) You don't have to be afraid. It's not how well-trained you are or or how clever a presentation uh, you've memorized or, or how much theology you actually understand. It has everything to do with delivering a message that's already complete. And it carries with it the power of God. We're just supposed to be minds. We're just supposed to be examples. It carries the power of salvation for anyone that will trust God and the provision for sin that He's already provided in Jesus Christ. To be too concerned with ourselves can cause deep fear, the fear of man, and hinder us from being evangelistic. It's actually sinful. And therefore, we unwittingly hinder the gospel ministry that God so much wants to use us all in if we're believers. Not just missionaries, not just pastors, not just teachers. Now the method, the phrase sound it forth in verse 8 is very unique. It speaks of a sounding board. Um, It's sounded forth. The root comes from where we get our English word echo. Echo. It it denotes the reverberations of a loud sound going on and on. Another word picture that that comes to mind here from this Greek word is a parabolic arch or a sounding board which reinforces the sounds and causes them to travel in various directions. So on a stage, when they would do their plays, they'd have these big sound boards, if you will, and the speaker's words would hit those sound boards and then the sound would go out forth from that sound board. That's what the Thessalonians were like. That's what we are supposed to be like. It's not our words. We're just a sound board. <laughs> and, and that's why we don't have to be fearful. That's why we don't have to worry about ourselves if we just understand the message and repeat the message. Therein lies the power. The extent of that message. The Thessalonians were reaching all of Greece. Paul said that the word of the Lord had sounded forth in Macedonia, which is the modern-day Greece. Interestingly enough, those affected by the testimony of the Thessalonians included believers in Philippi and also on Berea. Now, we all know those Bereans, right? These Thessalonians were an example, an activist, sounding forth the word of God even in the area usually cited as a foundation for all diligence in God's world, uh, God's word. Be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if it was so. We always talk about the Bereans, right? Well, hey, listen, they were influenced by the Thessalonians. Go back and read the, about the Thessalonians. This progress was exactly in keeping with the great Holy Spirit strategy to see all of Europe eventually reached with the the gospel. And it was the beginning of the faithful witness of the Thessalonians believers. Now, 
not only did their proclamation of the word come forth, but we also see their dramatic conversion. Okay? In the final two verses, we see verse 9 and 10, the powerful conversion that they experienced. He declares three distinct results that the Thessalonians' dramatic conversion brought about. Each of these three results fit nicely with Paul's previous recognition of the Christian virtues that he listed earlier in the chapter. Their turning, okay, their conversion, their turning relates to their work of faith. Their serving relates to their labor of love. And their waiting relates to their steadfast, steadfast hope. You know, I'm so glad that I know the Lord because I have hope. (laughs) And this world gets pretty darn bleak, doesn't it? I mean, we've got troubles on every side. But you do realize this, this, this world is not our home. There's an old song like that. We're just a passing through. That's very, very true. And sometimes we just have to grab ourselves by the scruff of our own necks and talk to ourselves and encourage our own hearts and remind ourselves we're going to heaven. I tell our church, it's like you're on an escalator going up. Even if you turn around and start walking down, you're still going up. You're going to get to the top of the stairs. Now, you might slow yourself down a little bit walking down the up escalator, but you're on the escalator. It's in the bag. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he meant what he said. And what did he mean when he said it's finished? There is no more work for us to do except to bring him glory by reflecting his word to other people. It's such glorious news, but boy, sometimes we can get pretty down. Pretty down. And that's when we need to talk to ourselves. John Piper is a neighbor. He lives on the other side of the river. lives in Minneapolis, okay, across the Mississippi River. And John Piper talks about fighting for joy. Do you ever have to fight for joy? I do. I do. Things aren't going the way I think they should go at my church. Things aren't going the way I think it should go in my life. And I find myself down under and I have to fight for joy. But doesn't the Bible say that the joy of the Lord is our strength? Well, I tell you, we need to fight for that joy. And they had a steadfastness of hope. And the only place we get that is from the Lord and from the Gospel. Well, first, let's look at their turning, okay? Because their turning relates to their work of faith. Now, the Thessalonians underwent a radical turning that was obvious to everybody that knew the Thessalonians. Whereas once they followed the way of idols and all that demanded of them in their personal lives, now they were different. They weren't like they were before. Now they were going in the complete opposite direction. They had turned from one way and were now going in the other way. The word used for turn is taken from the Greek, and it's an aorist tense. And it means basically that they did something in the past. The Thessalonians exercised an immediate, decisive change which came about as a direct result of a deliberate choice. Now God's behind that choice, working, His good pleasure, but they responded. 
This voluntary act came in response to the presentation of the truth of the gospel message which Paul and Silas so faithfully preached to them. This turning is the culmination of the Thessalonians' repentance. It's what you get when you repent. Its parallel term also reflected an aspect of turning in attitude, will, and behavior. It's not just a mental thing. They changed their mind about something. They changed their heart. And in changing their heart, they changed their behavior. Or I should say God did. This is the full, the full load here. True repentance will always result in this final act of conversion represented here in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Other uses of the word would help us to understand this too, and I'll get to those in a second. This turning, it was a turning that was observable. It was a turning that made my friends say, you're no fun anymore. I thought I was fine. I was much happier than I had ever been in my life before. You see, the angry man becomes kind. The greedy one becomes generous. The hateful one becomes friendly. The drunk becomes sober. The drug user goes straight. The immoral person begins to act in moral ways. That's the power of the Gospel. Now, we've got a lot of people that profess to be believers that haven't turned. They haven't really repented. And they might look good polished up on Sunday, but the way they live their lives does not testify to the power of the Gospel. We don't want to be culturally Christians. We want to be bonafide. We want to have that hope that, that just is in our hearts. We want to have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We sang a lot about the love of God. I mean, I tell our church, if you want to check and see if you're a bona fide Christian, go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at the fruit of the Spirit and then ask your wife if you're evidencing the fruit of that Spirit. Or ask your husband. Or ask your parent. Or, God forbid, ask your child. If your life is evidencing the fruit of the Spirit, it's a, it's a short little list there. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, so forth. Okay? Because that will show that you're a believer. You know, something else, if that's too heavy for you, just go to 1 uh, Corinthians 13 and check out the definition of love there and ask the person the same thing. Am I evidencing that in my life? Because that is the work of the Spirit of God. It's a supernatural thing. You can't gin that stuff up. You can't make believe. That's what will really tell you. It's not whether you come to church every Sunday or go to the Bible study or whatever else you do. Let's look at this word turning here a little bit. Acts 14.15 says this, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you. Remember, they want to worship Paul. And and And... We preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Okay, Over in Acts 26.18, Paul said his ministry was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. There's a difference, people. Acts 26.20, but kept 
declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn. There they are, both together. Repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You don't perform the deeds to repent. You, re- you perform the deeds as a result of the repentance. They come forth. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If you are in Christ, you're a new creation, a new creature. Behold, all things have become new and the old things are passed away. That is good news. But for professors, that's not true. Old things haven't passed away. They're still right there hounding them. And they're living in that same way. So we've got their turning. Now let's look at their serving. In verse 9, it says that they turned to God from idols to serve. To serve. This purpose of their Christian life is thoroughly examined. The evidence of the Christian virtues actively present in the Thessalonian life Very clearly, their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. All speak to this service to the living God. He is referred to as living in contrast to the deadness and unreality of the idols that they once served. You know, over in uh, Psalm 115, we find out about idols. It says that their idols are the work of men's hands, having mouths but unable to speak. They have eyes, but they're unable to see. They have ears, unable to hear. A nose, but unable to smell. Hands, but unable to feel. And having feet, but unable to walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then it says, and those who make them will become like them. Wow. But Paul says, You're not like that. You turned from those idols to a living God and you served. You did something. It's active. The thought communicated in this verse is that the Thessalonians were saved to serve, not to watch, not to sit. Saved to serve. We preach every member function. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the gifting Every true born-again believer has at least one spiritual gift, sometimes multiple spiritual gifts. And you will not be happy in Jesus unless you're functioning in those gifts. I'm a happy guy right now. (laughs) This is what I love to do. Okay? I love teaching. I love preaching God's Word. And I'm thrilled to do it. And I get done, and you can talk to my wife. I'm deflated. I'm just like, whoa, I'm tired. But I'm just ginned up. I can't sleep. If I do it at night, I have to watch sci-fi. Get myself totally bored so I go to sleep. I, you know, I just get all energy from this, even though it wears me out. Because this is my gift. What is your gift? It's a gasoline in your engine. If you're not using your gift, you're running on fumes. If you're using your gift, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They were using their gifts. The other purpose that came out of their conversion is seen in the waiting for His Son from heaven. So they turned, they served, and they waited. Now that's an act of waiting. They were functioning. They weren't just sitting, waiting. 
like I did when I first got saved. I thought Jesus was going to come back right away, right? You heard of the carpenter that just stopped working, stopped building cabinets because he thought the rapture was going to take place. He thought, why go to all the work? Yeah, no, that's not what they did. Paul introduces the thought of the second coming at this point. He does not go into a lot of detail here, but he just runs past it, which really points out to us the kind of teaching that he and his compatriots had done on their first trip, obviously. The last portion of the first chapter of Thessalonians gives us insight into that teaching. He says in verse nine or verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That one verse has about four sermons in it. That is so packed. And that's the economy of words that the Spirit of God gave to the Apostle Paul as he wrote to us so that we would understand these things. It's beautiful. One of the things that it says is that we will be rescued from the wrath wrath to come. You know, uh, one old commentator, A.W. Pink, said, a study of the concordance will easily show you that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. And you go, whoa. But it's true. It's true. And you know what? If a person does not understand that they are abiding under the wrath of God, and that if they were to die in that state, they would go into an eternity of separation from God called hell, they can never convert. If they don't know they're lost, they can't be found. And so we've got to deliver the bad news before we deliver the good news. And I think people are afraid to tell people this bad news today. It's surely not politically correct, believe me. But we must. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God in a chapter titled The Wrath of God has clarified a few facts about the wrath of God. Number one, he says, the wrath of God is unlike the anger of men. It's not like our anger, so don't get that mixed up. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The wrath of God is not cruel or immoral. God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial. The wrath of a judge administering justice. The explicit presupposition of those who experience the fullness of God's wrath is that each receives precisely what they deserve. Romans 2.5 teaches that the righteous judgment of God will render to every man according to his deeds. It's not capricious. And the wrath of God is something people choose for themselves. John 3.18 says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. The wrath of God can be accumulated by people. This is frightening. In one of the most frightful verses in the Scripture, we're told that people, through stubbornness and lack of repentance, are actually storing up for themselves wrath. 
The simple word picture portrayed here is the accumulation of an account, much like a savings account in a bank where deposits are made and reckoned to your account, except this is with God's wrath by continuing to push His love and His forgiveness away from us we store up wrath for ourselves to be revealed and unleashed upon all who are stubborn and unrepentant in that day. Wow. That's amazing. And yet we're told that that wrath, Jesus Christ rescues us from it. God never gives the bad news without giving us the good news real rapidly afterwards. He knows it crushes us. And so the good news follows rapidly. He says He will rescue us from that wrath. He's able to rescue us from the wrath to come. Now that wrath, I think, very much refers to the wrath at the end of the day. But the truth of the matter is, whether you think it's the wrath that you might be experiencing in life now or the wrath at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is that we're rescued from it. And I I just go with that. Because it could refer to the coming wrath in the last day, the great tribulation. In either event, between sinful man and the awesome wrath of God stands the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you moved the screen up and there's a cross there. Thank you. That was nice. If we admit our sin and, and seek His forgiveness, won for us in His death, burial and resurrection, we will never see or feel the wrath of God. I learned a little song. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes when I'm really down, I remind myself of that, and it buoys me up. There is therefore now no condemnation. None. We will never touch it. Do you know why? Because Jesus drank it all. That's what he meant when he said, it is finished. It is finished, people. That's, That's good news. The wrath of God will never touch you because you are free from the wrath of God. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Now in closing, I I pray that if there's anybody here today that is hearing this and it's kind of striking, making you a little bit of fearful, thinking about the wrath of God and wondering, and you haven't made a decisive break and turned from your old ways, truly, and you know that in your own heart, then I just beg you today, receive his forgiveness. It's, it's available to you right now. You don't have to come down here. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to pray a prayer. You just need to yield yourself over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell him, I appreciate, I thank you for what you did on my behalf. And I believe that. It's all you have to do. Some uh, people were telling me that uh, their children were talking to them they said i never never knew that i had to actually ask christ to forgive me to ask christ to to you know be my savior now that's not true even though the child said that right because until you do that you don't hear it (laughs) you never hear it you never think you ever heard it Um, but the truth of the matter is you've probably been hearing it every sunday in church from your pastor but You've got the blinders on, the veils over your face. But I just say to you today, yes, you can receive Christ right now. And by receiving Him, I mean you can trust Him for your eternal salvation. It is not a hard thing to do. 
it's an impossible thing to do. <laughs> but if you really sense your sin and you want to repent from it and trust Him right now, you can do that right now where you sit. Because of the wrath that God poured out on Christ and on the cross on behalf of all those who will believe. So, where do you stand? I mean, this is we're in church, so I have freedom to do this, right? Where do you stand? I mean, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Or are you on the outside mounting up that wrath, building up that account of wrath? I'd plead with you to come. And I want to just share as my last word to you uh, one of my favorite benedictions. I, I give it at my church all the time. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll let those be my last words. Thank you.